0: You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney.
1: And I'm Andrew Kleinman.
0: On today's episode, we'll be talking with a Substack author who goes by the pseudonym Edingermentum. He wrote a piece back in March entitled The Modern Electoral History of Transphobia. and We'll be talking with him about that piece and the right-wing attack on transphobia in the U.S., To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. And if you find yourself appreciating the podcast, please do not forget to subscribe, to like, to comment, and to write to us. We very much appreciate it. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Edger Mentum about the electoral history of transphobia. But before that, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take a few minutes to talk about some current events. We are recording this main segment on October 4th, and we are going to... Catch up talking about all the indictments against Donald Trump. There's the fraud case, too, which is ongoing as we speak now. So we've got—
1: And there's a limited gag order against him.
0: Yeah. So there are a lot of different things that could be covered, from the the very detailed nuts and bolts of the legal issues involved to big-scale, large-scale pictures about what this means for Trump, for Trumpism, for American politics— where do you think we should start, Andrew?
1: Start anywhere. I mean, even if, like, you were to start like with the the New York uh, case brought by the Attorney General, which is ongoing right now. It's not a, a criminal case, and it has nothing to do with January sixth. But Trump is inciting violence, this and that, and that's what he's doing in all of these cases, trying to poison the jury pool, trying to intimidate people. So. Uh, it's all related,
0: I, th- I think, you know, so you can jump in at any point. Start talking about the fraud case because here Trump is in the courtroom yesterday posting threatening social media messages on Truth Social about the law clerk for the judge while he's in court on... Possibly faced with uh, losing his entire business empire, losing all of his buildings, he is threatening the the law clerk who's in the same room with him. There's no jury pool for him to try to taint here, and the judge is obviously not gonna be swayed to be softer in his his, his decision about Trump because he feels his law clerk's being threatened, right? So, so yes, it's clear that Trump is trying to poison the jury pool in some of these cases, but in this case, is this just An instance or an example of how Trump just doesn't, is not able to constrain his own behavior to save his own ass because he just only knows how to be belligerent and fight?
1: Uh, Well, I think there's some of it, but he does know how to control himself because when the judge said, take that post down, he took it down. I think that, look, you know, when the facts are against you, you argue law. When the, the law is against you, you argue facts. When both are against pound the table when he can't do that. You know, he threatens and he lashes out. I think what he's trying to do is really the only move that is left for him, which is make himself a martyr and hope that his people rise up and so forth. You know, he's encouraging that at every moment. So it doesn't really matter what case it is, how it's going to affect the, the outcome of the trial. His hope rests on. Becoming the leader again and, and signing something and you know calling out the troops and and quashing it all. Okay, he has got no legal grounds to stand on in any of these cases. He can't win them except where he's got the judge in his pocket. Maybe you know in, in Florida. So the whole thing is quote political, but it's really about insurrection and 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 fascism and and taking back the country. So this, in a sense, a gag order plays into his hands at every moment because it makes him more of a martyr. That's what I think is going on. I don't think it's a crazy strategy, given how he has really no other moves. I can't see that he has any other moves. And this looks like a good move, given that you got
0: no others. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, A while back, we talked about one of MHI's editorials about the legal cases against Trump that talked about how... Look, in the courtroom, you can't just make up facts and play to your base in order to get out of trouble. Uh, Facts are facts. The truth is truth in the court, or at least there should be. So, for instance, we see the striking case of the judge in the New York fraud case saying to Trump, you can't just make up uh, the size of your apartment in Trump Towers. Uh, Square footage is an actual thing. It's not a matter of subjective opinion, right? It's not like making up the size of your inauguration crowd where there's no consequence. This is, this is a matter of law, and it's decided on facts.
1: Right. So, so, so his side, they've taken they're arguing exactly that point that asset valuation is subjective. <laughs> what is it? I think one of his properties, maybe Mar-a-Lago, you valued it like, 23 times what it's actually worth. I mean there's some there's some leeway there you know but then his his guy Weiselberg gets on the stand oh generally accepted accounting principles i heard of them you know but i didn't take the cpa exam so i mean i don't use Oh them. that was his son. That was Weiselberg maybe oh, was
0: also his son. Oh there was also this deposition of uh, Don Jr. Yeah. saying the same thing yeah. Uh, basically. God.
1: Yeah. Alternative facts, you know, it's all a matter of opinion.
0: Yeah. So, you know, here we are like inching closer and closer to the possibility that there might be consequences for Donald Trump because there's there have been so few consequences for him and the political realm. And because of the inability of the American political establishment for the American electorate to like fully denounce Trumpism and demand consequences for all of his crazy things he he's done. We're like in this space where it's this attack on reality that he's initiated has just like ripped the country apart. And the only place left where there might be some hope for consequences at the moment are in this legal system where facts do matter and where you can't just bullshit your way out of things. But it's still, it's coming right up against the election season. These trials are going to be happening hopefully next year while he's running in the primaries or some of them might even happen after the primaries so we'll see if like it happens in time that's the big question i guess
1: yeah it's definitely a race against time jack smith is definitely like you know go 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 Uh, the judge in dc tanya chutkin is very aware of this and you know she said like basically the more you try to threaten you know intimidate poison the jury pool by spitting things your way, that's, you know, grounds for moving up the trial to stop that process. And uh, Smith's request to put a fairly serious gag order on what uh, Trump can can say, in that case, uh, the hearing is in 12 days. And it's why they expected that she's going to put a gag order on him because I mean they're 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 all like totally just disgusted with him, you know. So it's like I think he probably does want these gag orders because he looks like you know a martyr to his uh, to his base, but it's not like a real gag order, like. It. You're probably too young to remember the Chicago 8 trial, which became the Chicago 7 trial because the Black Panther, among them Bobby Seale, his case got, you know, separated. But the judge had him actually bound and gagged in the courtroom. He had to sit there, you know, with his mouth taped over and and, and his arms taped to the chair. That that would be a fitting gag order. But even today, In the trial, the New York Trump Organization fraud trial, the judge was saying, yeah, look, you know, this is not a jury trial. You Trump lawyers don't play to any jury because there's no jury to play to. And it was reported that that Trump threw up his arms in exasperation. I thought that was really telling. It's like, gee, this is what I'm all about. You know, it's like,
0: Mm -hmm. you're not letting
1: me be me. You know, like, let Trump be Trump. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, it seemed like his... Lawyers were just making speeches for to impress Trump.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, there, were, there was some point of law as to who was the main signatory to something, whatever. And the judge said, look, I don't care about that. It's not important. Let's move on.
0: You know, you're not you're not talking to a jury. Yeah, here. well, I just mean in general, the reporting about his lawyers' op- opening, st- oh, opening yeah. statements and everything. They're just sort of grandstanding and making speeches as if they're yeah. playing to a jury, but there's no jury there. So they're obviously just trying to impress their client
1: yeah and, and say what he and, wants and, to, yeah. and the base and, and the base you know if they can spin a story mm-hmm. that's all it takes in this realm of everything's a matter of opinion and alternative facts are as good as real facts all it takes is being able to have a comeback yeah yeah it doesn't matter what anybody shows what anybody proves you've got like oh well he got a different opinion and we need to, you know, preserve academic debate, which I've been told recently, you know, it's just like, yeah, somebody comes back and then you can't establish anything.
0: Yeah. No truths can ever be established. What else do we need to say here for uh, this short segment? Well, we haven't mentioned Georgia. And I think Georgia is where
1: the whole Trump thing might actually come unstuck, where it's going to unravel.
0: Because here you got a lot of different people. Yeah, but we also have the time issues, which I think are concerning. Just that Acadian people are worried that the case with this many defendants could drag on a long time.
1: Uh, True, but you've already got one person flipped. They're offering plea deals to a lot of the, uh, you know, small fish. And I mean, I'm not sure that trials have to run successively rather than concurrently. But whether you get it Decision in the case or not? If you enough of these people flipping and turning on each other, th- this could could damage the whole operation. I don't know how it would exactly, but and they're fighting each other, and each person is looking out for number one. That doesn't bode well for your side, you know. I mean, we just yeah. know that.
0: Especially, so yeah, some of these people are, could do some real damage to Trump, Eastman, oh, yeah. Giuliani. If yeah. they, yep. you know, Giuliani's completely broke and. Like begging for money and can't even practice. Yeah, even
1: Sydney Powell. Yeah, yeah. even Sydney Powell. Because she was there in that uh, fateful meeting, an hour before you know he goes. You know, January sixth. Come on down. You know, it'll be wild. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, and Giuliani is just publicly humiliated. He there's this aerial footage of him going into a second chance bail office to get his bond in georgia i didn't know oh, that
1: oh my god oh yeah,
0: the company is called second chance second chance bonds or something second chance bail bonds and there's wow. they got helicopter footage of him getting out of his limo and going into this <laughs> bail bondsman's office in georgia to to get the money because he doesn't have enough money to pay his bail wow or, and he probably
1: can't afford cheapo hair dye anymore yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: So he's selling his condo in New York and he's just totally destitute. And he's got lawsuits against him from the election workers in Georgia. He's got lawsuits against him from this staffer that he was sexually harassing. So he's totally just at the rock bottom. So, you know, maybe couldn't
1: happen to a nicer yeah, man.
0: Well, maybe he'll maybe he'll flip and uh, that would be amazing. Yeah. But the other thing that's humiliating for Giuliani is that It's a RICO case being brought against him. And here is a guy who (laughs) was a prosecutor who brought RICO charges. He, like, was famous before he was a mayor for doing RICO cases in in New York. And now he's at the center of a RICO investigation. So it's just, like, the most humiliating downfall for a so-called America's mayor.
1: Yeah. I've always loathed the man, and it's just, you know, he— Really, he had a fascistic you know, administration when he was mayor yeah. and, and everything. And it's just so good to see him <laughs> in this situation. Yeah. It's kind of like karma. Yeah, it is. You know, if I believed in karma. but It is amazing.
0: It is very pleased. I watched that helicopter footage of him going into the bail, bail bondsman's office. Oh, I got to check again. this out. I oh.
1: didn't know about
0: oh. it. Oh. We'll have to link <laughs> yeah. to it. So Play on a continuous can, yeah. loop. <laughs> we'll have to know. link to it yeah. so all of our viewers, your yeah. listeners can... Can enjoy it for themselves if they haven't seen it yet it's incredible second chance second chance bail bonds or something like that oh my god <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> i
1: mean the next thing is he's going to be selling his blood yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> okay well that's all the time we have for our short current events segment but up next our conversation with Ed and germentum about the right-wing attack on trans rights We are recording this segment on September 26th, and we are pleased to welcome to the podcast Substack author, Edinger Mentum. is an author of a Substack that discusses electoral politics in the United States, and he wrote a piece back in March entitled, The Modern Electoral History of Transphobia, and we thought he might be a good guest to have on the show to talk about anti-trans politics in the United States and the resistance against those politics. And so on the podcast as well today, joining us is Gabriel Donnelly, who's been a frequent guest. And it was Gabriel who suggested that we do an episode talking about the right-wing attack on trans rights in the United States. And in discussing what to talk about, your piece at Intermentum came up and we read it and thought maybe we would invite you on and see if you were willing to talk about your piece about the attack on trans rights in the US in general. So that's how we came about asking you on. So anyway, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's
3: good to
2: be on. As Brendan just mentioned, I was thinking very seriously about uh, how do we discuss this rising wave of, you know, anti-trans bigotry on from the right and the extreme right in America? And we were thinking very seriously how to approach it and we kept consulting i kept consulting anyway and thinking about it with that piece that was just mentioned the electoral history of transphobia and well first i think i should get a disclaimer out of the way that it's we have four cis guys on here to discuss this and that's just the the structure of the episode but that out of the way um and your article the electoral history of transphobia i through several examples of transphobic anti-trans extremism on the trumpist right in recent years where does this anti-trans extremism come from and can you point to any ways in which it's evolved in recent years
3: yeah so um basically um the uh i try to like uh like go back to like the first kind of high profile political electoral kind of example of it which was um in 2016 2015 in north carolina and uh, obviously like trans rights have been a fight politically for a long time before that, like, but this is like, I think you can kind of pinpoint to that as the first time it becomes a modern culture war issue in terms of it being legislative upon and there being kind of a cultural reaction to it. And the story behind that is you see like um, once, like, like sexuality and gender have like for decades been a major part of American politics and cultural politics. But as, like, gay marriage becomes more accepted. Republicans, like, kind of want to get the sexuality angle. They kind of start finding different ways to do it. So in 2013, you have um, this organization called the Alliance Defending Freedom, formerly known as the Alliance Defense Fund, who were introducing model legislation in these a bunch of red states for bathroom bills that would prohibit people from entering any bathroom other than the one that other than the gender listed on their birth certificate and none of these bills get through but they're being like kind of introduced with increasing frequency um during this period so in 2015 the charlotte city council passes an ordinance that like like uh, like establishes protections for sexual and gender identity with public facilities and contractors and that Sparks a reaction from the North Carolina government, the state legislator and the governor there, Pat McCrory, who uh, pushed for a law called HB2 that overturns that and basically mandates, like, that you could like bathroom bill policies throughout all North Carolina. And this becomes a big flashpoint because, for mostly among business and like sports organizations, where they realize, like, wait, if we make our people travel North Carolina, they'll be forced to comply with this law, and that could cause like like compliance issues with, uh, like, inclusion stuff. So a lot of companies start pulling out of North Carolina. It becomes a big um, uh, economic liability for the state. It costs them several billion dollars, and it becomes a big part of the gubernatorial election in 2016. North Carolina has their governor elections in presidential years. So what happens is that even though Trump wins North Carolina pretty solidly, I think by about four points, Uh, the Democrat running for governor there beats the incumbent Republican very narrowly. And that's kind of the first example where this um, kind of politics is being litigated and it's a disaster for Republicans. It really was a massive blow for them because the governor before this whole thing was pretty popular. And this like one thing kind of just destroyed him.
0: But in terms of like the evolution of this types of politics, what, um, I mean, do we see like pretty much is sustained and like persistent type of approach or is the right like trying different things
3: yeah there's definitely kind of an ebb and a flow to it because after the north carolina race i go over this in the article which you um guys can uh read basically the uh republicans retreat from the issue after the north carolina race really kind of scares them they don't like talk about it as much trump's actions on it are very limited and they just kind of amount to reversing some like decisions Obama made during like the latter half of his presidency to like for protections for trans people. But they aren't like um um uh, like like he's not introducing like things that went beyond what existed during the Obama years. And Republicans kind of shy away from until around twenty nineteen when Republicans do a test case in the Kentucky governor race where they change it from being about bathrooms to being about uh like school sports and that becomes their new angle where they make it about children instead of about the adults where they they do kind of admit that nobody really cares about the adults and that was kind of like a failed issue and they try pushing it over towards like oh we're just trying to protect children we're protecting parental rights and that kind of strain is the version in which it has uh, taken like since around then it didn't work out in the 2019 kentucky race the democrats actually won that which was pretty surprising in kentucky and then it kind of ebbs a little bit when Trump is kind of running the whole right-wing show. Uh, but uh, when Biden is elected and they're really lacking a sense of leadership in the party, a Trump-like transphobia ends up being a thing that fills in that gap that gives them a sense of purpose and they think is a winning issue. And that kind of version of it that's more focused on, uh, like, Kids and parental supposed parental rights and all of that becomes predominant in how they present the issue, but it doesn't do any better. Like they try to push this throughout all the races in 2022, and that year ends up being a historic disaster for them. So there is this evolution where they're trying to try all these new angles. The frequency in which they employ the rhetoric changes as like their the state of the party changes. But throughout it all, it never is any more of a winning issue. People really, it's just, they're pushing, part of it is that it's very low salience. People just don't really care about it, Um, and they're seen as pushing on this irrelevant issue. And the other part of it is it's associated with people, like with broader debates about LGBT rights, where people are pretty tolerant and progressive, and they have been in recent years.
0: I wonder if we could just make sure people don't miss that last point. You're saying that it's low salience as an issue mm-hmm. like i guess maybe you could just explain what you mean by that but then you, you're also saying that pro-lgbt rights are uh, the, the lgbt rights are very popular in the u.s electorate yeah
3: right. it's, it's a mix of things so on one hand they're really pushing an issue that people it's not really top of mind for most voters so that just is a bad campaign tactic they're like not meeting the people where they are. They look like they're out of touch, and it hurts their kind of overall brand. But on the other hand, when people are forced to really care about it, most they associate it with LGBT. It's part of the acronym. Like trans people, I've always been part of that. Like so, when like they're forced to consider this, they consider it along the lines of like the like the other debates that they've had about like sh- sexual and gender identity that the left has won. And they recognize it's the same groups so and it's the same rhetoric. And that uh, like even if like you can put people on a certain focus group and you narrowly ask them about one specifically framed question, they'll answer a certain way. But it comes to that people generally don't care about politics so close that they're looking at every little thing. They like here, like they're bringing up this question of like LGBT rights and they generally don't want to side against that. It's not appealing.
2: Can I ask, jump in and ask. Add incrementum, you just mentioned that this is a, a low salience issue for for voters. How do I put this? How high would you say the salience of an allegiance to defending already won gains is? Is it like voters are actively for not, you know, opposed to revanchism on LGBT issues? Well, or is I, it that they just are over talking about
3: it. There are really just like two main priorities right now with voters, and that's the inflation like the economy and abortion anything besides those two issues is really kind of a subsidiary i can't like give you like an exact number on it but like the number of people who um say that uh, like lgbt issues are like their number one thing is like really uh, like this specific question of like like parental rights as the right calls it or trans issues it's like in the low single digits it's not like top of mind for most people basically my point is that like first like Republicans are hurting themselves by talking about this instead of issues where they otherwise could be making like potential gains to the extent that this does help them whatsoever and then like even like when they do make it a larger issue it doesn't necessarily help them because it's associated with all these other things when you get to like the specifics of the actual policies like people will like have more mixed opinions like they'll say oh like i don't want i think parents should have rights i think that sports should be fair like when you phrase the questions in a certain way it that's kind of like the basis upon which i kind of understand it, which is why i'm trying these distinctions but when you get to the actual like the way politics functions it doesn't work in the way that they can just pick and choose their specific positions where they have a focus group agree with them and suddenly make the electorate polarized around that that's not how it works
1: so anti-trans politics is not popular Mm -hmm. as you've been saying. But does that mean that pro-trans politics is popular in light of it being a low salience issue? For instance, writing in The Nation, Ajit here cited your article, and he said, because there's a fundamentally libertarian streak among many Americans, and because public opinion has shifted somewhat, quote, trans rights are a winning issue. Um, it seems to me that that's not what you were saying, even though uh, he was piggybacking off of you. But what is it that you are saying?
3: It's tricky. I think to the extent that you can connect trans rights to larger questions of LGBT rights, that is absolutely a winning proposition. You can see this polls where you can look at these specific issues where like, people are led to respond a certain way, and I don't want to like minimize those just doesn't show that like Republicans are making gains through this. And it's hard because you um, you don't really have too many examples of Democrats pushing back on it very robustly. Um, they It's mostly just kind of reframing the question to more relevant issues about the economy or like abortion especially. Uh, so it's like, I think the way that it's gone so far is that Republicans whip themselves into a frenzy about this, hoping they'll be able to bring people to their side. It doesn't really work uh, to the extent that, like, it would be beneficial to actively oppose Republicans on this versus just kind of letting them do it in the background and, like, letting them kind of shoot themselves in the foot, like, by uh, focusing on something that isn't really relevant to most people. I don't think that's really been tried, so it's a bit tougher to say that like it's actively something they should like push forward on the counterposing side actually i have a
1: little follow-up question just going back to the north carolina stuff is a lot of the pushback against that anti-trans stuff i guess the stuff having to do with the adults is that because of fears of the business community and others that jobs are going to go elsewhere.
3: It wasn't really fears among the business community because the the business community were the ones directing the backlash. The unpopularity of the law in North Carolina was certainly a result of it being considered a fail, like an economic problem. People like as much as they may have cared or not have cared about the law, it became a huge issue because people felt like they were um, being forced to bear an economic burden for a culture war fight that they weren't really directly, they didn't care about, and never really asked for. So I would like say that is definitely a unique kind of set of circumstances. But the point of a lot of these right-wing people is that they kind of hope that these kinds of culture war politics will be able to get people to vote against their material interests in favor of making some kind of stand. That was tested very explicitly in the North Carolina race, and it completely failed. So that kind of matchup is proven to not really be an effective one for their side at all
2: you mentioned there not being too many examples of of democrats sort of forcefully reframing the the debate i think i saw a tweet of yours a couple maybe a couple weeks ago or so something with governor whitmer in in michigan reframing Mm -hmm. um a protection of trans kids law as like keeping big government away from our kids something yeah yeah and and that seems to be a real, you know, taking that rhetoric and totally turning it around.
3: Yeah, they've done that on abortion, too, which I've always thought was clever. The thing is that that's kind of an example of um just taking the question of trans rights and reframing it into this other kind of uh, question that, like, you know that you have better, like, standing on. Like, broader LGBT rights in some cases are, like, the question of, like, big or small government. And that's uh, fine. The problem that I would caution people Is it explicitly making the question of trans rights as such matter of what the question is about? I can't really think of many examples of where that's been done. And I don't think if it really even needs to be done. If you can just change the question to something and it has the same positive effect either way, there's no real point point in like a purer way of doing the same thing. So like Jeet said, I can't say for certain that just the specific question of trans rights is a winning issue one way or the other. But I think it's very clear that being anti trains is not effective and can be very easily turned around in a way that hurts the people trying to employ it.
1: I thought that was one of the the most effective uh, parts of your article. You go through, I mean, I think there was like 10 cases. I found it very striking how poorly they did as against uh, the fundamentals. As a,
3: The baseline, yeah. What yeah, whatever the, the term is, yeah. it is one more
0: question about this question of like whether pro-trans politics is popular, there's a certain phenomena that I, I if I remember, you do mention at one point in your article, at which like polarization in U.S. electorate forces people to take sides on issues, sometimes issues they hadn't really been in their mind previously, mm-hmm. um, right? Like, and there are very few groups of people that that um, take take positions that straddle the the between trumpism and anti-trumpism is it possible that awareness of trans issues and support for trans issues is something that has increased in american politics because of the right-wing attack on trans people
3: yeah i think um, you can argue since some um, like the anti-trump side is clearly larger than the pro-trump side it's probably like on a, it's probably like on like a better like footing in terms of like a two-party thing than it might have been before. The thing is, is that with these kinds of cultural things, the ideal is for it to just be like kind of consensus where it's not like a matter of political debate in the first place, uh, which is kind of what people kind of might have expected or wanted. And uh, that has been kind of a that might have been what it was before it was intentionally politicized but it's definitely not what it is now. So um, I think to a degree it might have helped them, but not like the ideal here would be that it's not like really in question at all politically. And that's certainly not what the case is at the moment. Right. I don't
0: want to go too far off of our questions, but you make a good, you, earlier on your piece, you're talk, you talk about the very quick evolution of popular support for gay marriage. Mm-hmm. It was an issue that, centrist democrats wanted to avoid because they worried that it wasn't popular that they were going to get slammed by the right for being pro-gay marriage and then in a very short amount of time being pro-gay marriage became like a staple of Demo- democratic party politics from the centrist to the conservatives like it's just widely accepted that to be anti-gay or gay marriage you'd be like a pariah as a democratic candidate and that and that's a really quick turnaround right yeah um, and And I mean, you bring that up, right? Because like trans issues are are often seen as adjacent to LGBTQ issues. And now we have a situation where like this question of whether one should be supportive of trans people and advocate for them in your politics, or if you should avoid the issue because you're afraid you're going to get slammed on it. Like this is a major question that you're Trying to address in your piece, right? And you're trying to say that being for trans rights is actually a a good political move for democratic candidates.
3: Yeah, or at the very least, it's not harmful whatsoever. Like you can debate like what caused these people to do well, but like it being pro-trans certainly didn't hurt them, which is really like the main point that I think can be made here. I don't want to speak as to why every single candidate in all these races succeeded, and a lot of instances it was because of a lot of larger reasons the point is that like in all these cases republicans try to employ this rhetoric to like kind of bring themselves back to earth and it doesn't work like you don't there's no need to be actively anti-trans that is abundantly clear that is that is not even a question at this point the degree to which like the politics are one way or the other I don't really think is like evident right now on the specific issue, like in terms of being pro-trans. But uh, like, that's not to say you shouldn't like take that position. It's just like a clear, the idea that like you have to like compromise on the issue to like avoid alienating uh, X or Y class of voters. I think people are going out of their way to come to that conclusion because they want to come across as more pragmatic. And I really kind of looked down on that.
1: Right, and I mean this is not an issue for us. I wanted to make clear that you know we would be vocally supportive of trans rights, even if it were not a good thing in terms of the electoral strategy of the Democratic Party or Democratic <laughs> yeah, candidates. Yeah, It's an issue for them. What I take you to be saying is maybe it's an open question as to whether you know a real advocacy campaign would work if it's a low salience issue you're not going to get any you know brownie points by you know making your whole campaign about trans rights but you don't have to be silent on the issue that's that's what i Mm -hmm. think you're saying yeah yeah
0: yeah i don't understand why democratic candidates don't go after the the um, transphobia more aggressively because it just it's just so absurd i mean there are just so many ways you could Mm. i would think you could Attack people effectively on these people that want to like have, I don't know, inspect kids' genitals before they go into a bathroom. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, what they want to have like genital police in front of all the bathrooms and all the schools or something? Like what? What? What the fuck? have
1: them in theaters in in Colorado.
0: Yeah, it's just <laughs> unreal. You know, i just unreal. Like how? How? <laughs> anyway. When we talk about the Dobbs effect, the effect of the Dobbs decision, this is something that is very much in play with, in politics right now, the extreme reaction against the repealing of Roe v. Wade and the way that swayed elections against Republicans in the last couple of years. These are two different issues, Roe or the Dobbs effect and transphobia, where these right-wing populists are pursuing something that seems to be really hurting them electorally. Why are they doing
3: this? I think I kind of have a whole theory that is kind of like a massive psychological reaction where they're trying to, like, um, search for a sense of purpose after. Depends on what type of right-wing populist you're talking about. If you're talking about, like, the media people or the campaign people. But there is, like, the through line here, I think, is that their party is, like, not to sound like a resistance liberal or anything, but it is legitimately a personality cult. They don't really have anything going for it beyond Trump right now. But if you're somebody who has to work in politics day in and day out, you want to feel like you're doing it for some larger purpose, just, like, to get through the day. And, uh... The idea that Trumpism is some kind of larger philosophy is really appealing to that kind of person because it makes them feel like what they're doing has a purpose. So they've created this kind of reverse engineered ideology where like, oh, we're breaking away from neoliberalism. We're creating this right wing populist new worldview and it's going to change everything forever. And it's just it's totally unfounded. It's like not like derived from anything that people actually want. Or even their own voters have ever asked for. They're just doing it because they, they want to feel better about their lives. And because the whole party is dominated by just Trump, and there's not like any intra party pushback on that where people are like, what the fuck are you doing? We don't believe in any of this. So they've just pushed these kind of just very quixotic campaign strategies where they're just trying to prove some point to like nobody that end up being just like a complete disaster because it has no actual social basis whatsoever.
0: Well, it definitely has a social basis amongst the evangelical, white evangelicals,
3: right? I mean, but those people are still just regular conservatives in terms of like the kind of right-wing populist, where they're like, oh, we, we're we economically moderate and socially conservative. Like that thing just does not have like an actual constituency. But that's what DeSantis is pushing, it's what Trump is pushing a little bit. It's what like Vance and Hawley are trying to push. And that, it's just, just kind of come from thin air a little bit. It's come from, like, the top down is what I mean. You
0: don't think there's, like, mass support amongst evangelicals for transphobia and anti-abortion?
3: not transphobia. I mean, like, like I'm not saying social conservatism has no basis. I'm saying that this kind of combination they're trying to push, like you said, right-wing populism, uh, where, like, they're trying, like, it's like we don't care about social, like, economic issues anymore, we're trying to be like based like um, uh, national populace or whatever, like the whole thing about whether the party of the working class, that thing I don't think has an actual basis. The social conservatism certainly does. But trying to make the whole party revolve around social conservatism is very limiting. Right. He's, he's talking about
1: people like Josh Hawley and Tucker Carlson and JD Vance. Um they're trying to marry economic populism and social conservatism and make that the new basis of the the the, the GOP if i understand it correctly yeah, and going, they say say it doesn't going, work which is very surprising actually because um, that seems to, you know everything i read in terms of public opinion seems to Indicate that that's a real winning combination. That that's like where a broad swath of the American public is at. You know, they like guaranteed job guarantees. You know, and they they like uh, Social Security and they like uh, Medicare. You know, but they they don't like the other. I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with those those same you know kind of opinion surveys. So. What is it that that I'm not
3: getting? It's just there's no kind of coherence to what they're pushing. There's not really, like, uh, any kind of, like, uh, a real, like... And part of it is, I mean, it is kind of a new thing, and a lot of the candidates they've been running are just very poor. Like, uh, Vance, I think, was just, like, a poor candidate beyond the ideology. It's the economic moderation is, like, popular with Democrats and independents, but it's not popular with their own base. Democrats and democrat Independent leading independents aren't going to be convinced to vote for Republican just because they like social security they say they like social security which most of them don't a lot of them actually have like try to come they have a weird mix of where they're combining economic moderation with like just libertarianism which like can itself just be as unpopular with as like any of the regular socially conservative like george w bush positions they're pushing Mm -hmm. and they the social conservatism isn't just regular social conservatism they go insanely hard line on it like there's like talking about how we need to have complete bans on abortion bans on divorce like just the shit like they say like it's just not it's far beyond so like anything that would be considered consensus so it's not just like a question of disliking the other it's um just bringing up these like crazy kind of like Christian conservative viewpoints that have zero purchase and just leave them open to attack. And the idea is like, oh, we can get like the economic moderation to balance that off. People aren't really considering that. And half the time they're not even really doing that. So it's just this really kind of electorally terrible kind of combination. They haven't been able to figure out. And I don't expect them to really be able to figure out anytime soon.
2: As you were saying, you know, we're dealing with a party that's completely remade in the image of Trump. It is a personality cult. And RFH, we've talked about, they've, the host of RFH, RFH talked about many times, you know, the motivations for the attraction to Trump and, you know, the authoritarianism and so on. But the party now itself has to cope with the fact that it is just the Trump party. And it's trying to rationalize this and it's trying to. We talked in ideology and it it can't because the thing that people want is Trump, right? Is mm-hmm. uh, what they have with Trump is a situation where they have enough of these militants to win primaries, but not enough of the general, you know, not enough of the constituency to win elections. Like they they lost mm-hmm. all these elections that you cite in your article, the 10 because they're so fervent, but they aren't they're not able to cross the finish line. Is that right? Mm-hmm yeah that's so that's you know i think in some cases listeners could listen to you and think that you're um you know it's a tonic and and they shouldn't be worried but that to me is almost more worrying because they're they get more and more trained and they have less and less electoral success you know and they've already tried non-democratic methodologies right
0: you know sometimes this like doubling down on the this- the way the, the right-wing, the way the, Trump, the Trumpites double down on strategies, even if they seem to be hurting them, I mean, in some ways, maybe superficially, just seems like an extension of Trump's personality of, like, never say you're wrong. But um, more, like, probably more believable interpretation, sometimes people say, well, they have to do this because this really works in the primary, but then they have to just shift their strategy in the general election. Is this the kind of, you know, is that an explanation for why they double down on these strategies? Are they just strategies to motivate the base for primaries or for voter turnout kind of things?
3: Well, I mean, if that was the case, they would be um, doing this in the primaries and then not doing it in the general election. They do it in both. They like, they don't moderate in their rhetoric at all when they get to the general election. And like a lot of this is just really new developments. They were, I think, very convinced that this was going to work in 2022. Everybody thought it was going to be a red wave. They thought this was a winning strategy and they haven't really been able to cope with what happened. They still like hardly have even come to a message on abortion, which was a far clearer failing thing for them. So I think that just saying that like, Obviously, there is kind of a race to the extreme in the primary. That's undoubtedly an impact, but that's the only factor I would disagree with that. I don't think there's much evidence of that.
0: And then I think at one point in your piece, you mentioned something about like the nature of populism and that that's something that I always think about, uh, the fact that populists assume that their positions are ones that are shared by the mass of people. Mm-hmm. and. When you live in certain places where everyone thinks the same as you, or you go to Trump rallies full of thousands of people, or you go to mass, like evangelical gatherings full of tens of thousands of people, and they're all thinking like you, right? And sort of surround yourself in a certain ecosystem where you think that your ideas are the ideas of the people, of the common people, and that other ideas are, like, invasive and, like, outside views. There's a certain, you know, self-reinforcing ecosystem there and there's so you have like an, in, an intuition that your ideas do have mass appeal if you can just get them out there and that maybe the right wing is bumping up against that kind of phenomena to an extent you know people like Doug you know, I'm in Pennsylvania where Doug Mastriano you know tried to do the the Trump-like rallies big big rallies no media they blow blowing the shofar beforehand all this crazy totally crazy stuff uh, and he just got completely clobbered
3: Oh, that was like the worst result of the entire year. He got nuked. It was insane.
0: But his I think his supporters really didn't think he was gonna lose. I think they really thought that God was on their side and the people were on their side and they were convinced of it.
3: Oh yeah. He had like he didn't do any ads in the final month. He did like a like a forty day long fast before the election. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So that be that was like a major that was an open seat. That was a major race. I don't think people can really discount the fact that the people like who are working at like that high level of Republican politics, not all of them are really all there. You have to kind of consider that, too. Your major claim to fame is you got the
1: 2022 election right, mm-hmm. you know, so there was no red wave. What exactly did you say about the red wave that some people thought was coming and led you to conclude that, that was not correct?
3: Well, the obvious thing there was um, you had five elections that happened before, happened between the Dobbs ruling and before the election, and all those races Democrats did extremely well. They won two out of five of them. They were all in like Republican-leaning districts, and like including one it was in Alaska, and uh, that corresponded very heavily with um, a backlash to the abortion decision. The polls that like if you just if you looked at the actual polling companies that were polling it, like not just like Republican pollsters who were kind of just like choosing their own numbers, they all showed a pretty close race, like in all these seats. So this is why when I say people who dismiss Biden's bad numbers now by saying like, oh, the, they all thought it'd be red wave in twenty twenty two. That's not the case. We actually did have decent signs from the information that we had from these reliable firms that do polls that it would be a pretty neutral year so a lot of it you could see coming beforehand and it wasn't like too terribly difficult to do it was just a certain class of commentators were very sure of themselves and feel like they have to repeat certain narratives to get access weren't willing to believe it
1: so you 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 based yourself on polls and and special elections and not the hype and the push polls and stuff like that Yeah, yeah yeah. And, and okay so Right now, though, Democrats are also overperforming in a lot of the special elections since 2022, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. What do you make of that?
3: Well, it's um, there's it's a very difficult kind of thing to put like your handle on because the special elections in the latter half of 2022 did show a very strong, like, Democratic-leaning environment that didn't end up coming true in 2022. It was just kind of a neutral year. Ah, uh, but those were only five races. We have had dozens since then, and they all have shown a similar kind of uh, result. And I think that that is like a lot, like more kind of credible in terms of leaning towards a blowout than the previous results were. And if you combine the uh, post-op specials with the ones that happened beforehand, you got a final result that was very similar to the ultimate outcome. And that's been the case with special elections for the past number of cycles, though overall result that you see across all of them throughout like the previous two years preceding the election they predict the final results very accurately and they're currently showing um democrats blowing out republicans by like over 10 points like if you that's kind of like the rate they're performing at but at the same time you have biden outright trailing trump in the polls so the way that like you can synthesize that is like most obviously the Biden is extremely old and not popular and presiding has presided over a lot of material distress for people. And it's like not totally outlandish to imagine that people may dislike Republicans, but people just don't really comprehend just how unpopular Biden is right now. His economic record has been terrible, like people will dispute that, but like people hate it. They think it's they've, the last two years have been really tough. Uh his personal popularity is bad. People don't trust him or like him. They think he's too old to serve, which is huge. So like there's a possibility here that people would be like, well, I really dislike Republicans. Like I don't trust them, but I, Democrats are putting forward a guy I legitimately don't think is capable of doing the job. And that could weigh the party down. And maybe that doesn't end up happening. Maybe people will like kind of grin and bear it and just vote for Biden anyway, because the alternative is so bad. But it's like, you don't know that's going to happen.
0: Let's talk about resistance to transphobia in U.S. politics. Um, uh, maybe, you know, your article is mostly about this, the electoral success of or lack of success for transphobia. But what about people fighting against this transphobia do you have much to say about what form it's taken and well, um, what's going you've on? Most,
3: we've mostly seen stuff happening at the state level where you'll have blue states pass it like red states will pass these laws that make life a lot harder for trans people and then uh, blue states will pass kind of like sanctuary laws that like protect their trans people like guarantee them access to certain medic like the medications that they need help people kind of travel to get the medication there so it's been kind of like a red state blue state cold war along those lines. Uh, as for like the in-state activism, I can't really like say much for that. I mean, I'm certain people are doing things, but I'm not really an expert in what they're up to.
0: It does really sort of seem to mirror the same uh, post um distribution of medical services uh, or the sort of partisan relationship to medical access that's That's divided by different states. You have polarization polarization of medical access for both women and for trans people that it's like state by state. And there are like Mm -hmm. all these questions about whether you can get uh, medical access, telehealth medical care for or other sorts of remote care for your health care, whether you're a trans or a woman who is pregnant. Right. And it's sort of gone into the state by state legal mess.
1: There are a lot of people who regard themselves as leftists uh, who are what we call soft on Trump or Uh or worse, and sometimes they play footsie with transphobic ideas. For instance, Jimmy Dore, he's done a few videos on the controversy surrounding trans athletes, and he's also said that, quote, vocal trans activists uh, are violent, and we can put the youtube link in our description so it seems like there are leftists and people in the democratic party who have the view that trans people are an electoral burden or at least an overly loud interest group you you regard that as a mistake you know uh, that's what Mm -hmm. you've been arguing Uh, what would you say to them about this mistake that they're making
3: well you have to meet people as they as they actually are and not how you imagine them to be there is an active desire on the part of these people to make these compromises because not because they think that like it's something that needs to be done, because they think that it makes them more serious. So like what I would say to them is grow up, it's this isn't what people actually think. You're telling yourself this is what people think so you can feel like you're some tough guy making some tough decisions when you're not. You're going out of your way to like act like this like you're trying to be some pragmatist when you're This never is not a decision that needs to be made. Raises the question, why should we trust you on anything if you're going out of your way without looking at any of the information to throw people under the bus so you can feel like some tough, rugged commander of the people?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting thing, you know, portraying the tough guy. And to some extent, it's just contrarianism, it seems to me.
2: Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And... Also, you know, owning the resistance. All you people who think you're the left, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, so. Yeah,
3: it is contrarianism. It's just this kind of just like just contrived bullshit. I have no respect for it. I don't think that they're operating in good faith. It's not about the politics for them. What is it about? It's about them feeling like tough guys. It's like just pathetic.
2: I heard a lot of what I feel and what in that answer. I was actually talking to a past guest of RFH, Teresa Henry, about about this subject and and how best to approach it length before we did this. And it's really interesting and upsetting how much on the left, there are so self-described leftists and revolutionaries who frame themselves exactly as you're saying, as doing the hard work, determining, you know, the authentic working class and what they really care about and so quickly being so willing to abandon swaths of the working class population for and label them as a special interest group and it's exactly what you're saying it's it's a, it's not just a compromise it's this posturing of of toughness but also just a completely limited thinking for The potentialities of of these struggles and how, you know, struggles for trans dignity is a human and democratic struggle that enhances all of our
3: It would be worth fighting for even if it was unpopular. That's the other point. Like, so you're making a morally decrepit decision on the basis of pragmatism that would be wrong even if it was what you say it is, but it's not. So there's so many levels of it just being completely pathetic, like mindset. You're selling your soul. You're not even checking to see what you're getting in return. You're just going out of your way to sell your soul.
2: It's exactly what uh, Andrew's talked about at length with those who fell over themselves in 2016 to talk about how Trump was authentically representing, you know, a working class, Mm -hmm. you know, the real working class and, and, and went out of their way to ignore the data before them on that. But what you said about it being in bad faith, I think what they're doing in in terms of this posturing is being tough. They're appealing to their niche audience to make their media sour. I think we mentioned Jimmy Dore in the question. Jimmy wants to appeal to the certain type of tough guy. I'm willing to say the unpopular things. I'm I'm the guy who says the unpopular things crowd. That's his niche that's going to watch his videos. And so he'll pretend that he's taking the stance of the popular but unpopular to say things, even if they're not popular, so that mm-hmm. he hits that niche with which they are popular. Going back to what I've written
1: about their talk about the American working class, I think that like a lot of these people wouldn't know a worker if they stumbled over one. You know, their idea of the American working class comes from a 1930s socialist realist poster, you know. yeah <laughs> it's, Workers are, you know, Male, they're white, they're, you know, got rippling muscles, you know, they're cis. Yeah. Them. And all of this. And, they have and reality. Over their yeah. And the reality of the American working class is so totally different. And to deal with the working class and its struggles. You have to understand it as men and women and transgender people and white and black and, you know, immigrant, et cetera, et cetera. It's It's not the American working class of, of, you know, their imagination at all. So race and class issues are not separable. And these other issues are just not separable in the way that these people want to imagine that they are so that they can push, you know, kind of like, Economic populist politics to the exclusion of everything else.
0: Well, what accounts for the anti-trans politics? For the importance of this topic on the right? Why is this such an enduring and like passionate thing for people on the right?
3: It's like um, I'm gonna. I have like a big kind of a project that I'm working on about this that'll uh, come out in the next couple months, hopefully. Uh, But like basically, it's kind of what I said. Like these people need like a sense of purpose to what they're doing. And give it like feel like they're fighting. And like, I don't think the sincerity of some of it should be kind of underestimated. A lot of these people really do think that they're fighting for a last stand of Western civilization because they are cloistered, right wing, like, um, people, like, in you know, a certain bubble is very much real, uh, but like, it's very much top down, not bottom up. And it comes from that kind of like, I think, um, Uh, It's a bit of like a human desire, but it's no less kind of uh, just like elite level. And that's where I'd say it kind of originates.
0: Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clark, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast.
4: Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of trumpism triumphing in all out authoritarianism ext- our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of quote value close quote because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism not to socialism we are not a political party nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us.
0: I think if I was gonna have to spitball an answer, like why the anti-trans stuff is is so um, potent in the Trump base or the Trump politics, um, I would just. I, I wonder if it's like a, a, a like a panicked reaction to how quickly cultural ideas around gender identity have changed and how easily those things can change. Like I've noticed it myself as a middle-aged man who now has kids that when your kids grow up in an environment and where gender is presented to them as something that's that can change and it is fluid and they are exposed to people that have um, like non-conventional gender identities that kids just have no problem. I have so, I mean, so many times I've seen like adults um, think really hard about how to present these issues to kids, as th- assuming that kids are going to be resistant or confused or upset or something. Or, and kids just, they have no preconceptions about what gender is. And they just, they accept like the idea of gender as being a spectrum and people being fluid in the spectrum. They, they accept that like so quickly and they're like, no, no issues. Right, like my I have like I like know so many like young children who want to be called they instead of he or she, and it's just like normal now.
3: Yeah, they're just like it's what makes like it's not like and
0: and it's still for me like I remember ten years ago when I first heard people calling themselves they, I was so confused. I just I was just as you know linguistically so rattled by that for a while. It took me a while to be like, okay, I can accept this plural pronoun. Things have changed so quickly, and I can see. People who are, are from the religious right and who are deeply homophobic and have very rigid conceptions of sexuality, I could see them having a certain panicked reaction to how quickly cultural ideas have changed around these issues. I mean, you have like trans influencers. You got like, uh, like all of a sudden, like uh, you know, things have changed so quickly. And I can see that people must be people who are like offended by this stuff must be like in a panic
3: yeah yeah and like the way that they lost the fight on gay rights i think is like definitely like really rattled them and they're trying to really find dry land a little bit so i went to middle i went
2: to middle school and high school in new york and so you know that's a you know pretty liberal area always but i had a close friend that that transitioned and used the bathroom of their choice throughout that whole period and there was no controversy at all it wasn't even really Discussed because it wasn't an issue. Like we didn't air you know. And it had to be made a culture war issue by, I think, the people you're talking about, Brendan, who are and the people that was talking about, who's rattled by just losing on gay marriage. They see that they're shrinking. I mean, we think of the evangelicals in america's so so strong, such a huge constituency. But they, even their church turnout shrinks. You know, they have five, you know, five kids, whatever. They sh- it shrinks. So. People are checking out and they're losing this battle. And so they're having to try and fight it more and more fiercely. And I think that might be a a big explainer for why they're really kind of fighting this like it's the last stand.
1: First of all, their numbers yeah, have gone down hugely. I mean, I knew that they'd gone down, but when I saw recent figures about how much, you know, attendance at their churches and stuff has gone down, how poorly they're doing among young people, uh, it. It's really striking. And I think you're absolutely right that this uh, has a lot to do with the extremists. this is this is this is the last stand. And I mean, so it's very weird. you get you get it's not a winning issue. They know it's not a winning issue, okay? But they're desperate. And so much of the extremism that we're seeing is because of this desperation, knowing that time is against them demographically, it's against them culturally. But then what Andrew Menum is saying about the, the transphobia, the anti-trans politics not faring well electorally and the pushback against the the Dobbs. They're becoming more extreme and the more extreme they become, the less popular they're becoming. Yeah. So where do we go from there here? You know, they're trying everything, including, you know, fighting this this battle and then they're they're becoming they're extremisming themselves out you know
3: where do we go from here i think like um it depends on how much democrats are able to capitalize on it i don't think that forcing biden is a very good start but um if we're like in a situation like where they're able to consistently win power at the federal and often the state level that is, like, substantially different from how it was in, like, the mid-2010s, um, where uh, Republicans were really dominant, like, the federal level and, um, and like, pretty much every state. And that is going to, like, that creates different dynamics within the Democratic Party. It creates different dynamics with, like, how a lot of uh, state structures work. And I think that should at least be appreciated when people, like, at the very least, when people think about... Um, The long term of electoral politics, not really assuming that like, oh, Trumpism is like this kind of like it's the soul of America. But that may be true to an extent. But like the presumption that a lot of people have had that like it's fated to inevitably triumph and orienting their politics around that. I don't think that that is necessarily as true as it might have looked recently. And, and people I, like I, they look at specific metrics like, oh, unemployment is down. There's been wealth transfer because the rich people have lost more money, or it's like we're in these situations. All these situations are set up to potentially increase wages, and like. But it hasn't you're looking at something that is potential input for an output but the output isn't there so why are you expecting people to be happy about the inputs being set up so like the people like will Stansel who are like oh the economy is perfect it's all the media it's a conspiracy against biden that's completely asinine like you can't even say like they're like just lying about it because they sincerely seem to believe it. like it's like the economy is actually awesome they're making entire like political economic theories about like how like how that could possibly be that people dislike it it's just this level of where people are intensely disconnected from the actual reality that people have gone through and it's leading them so far astray it's unbelievable tough situation because people can't really seem to square the uh, fact that like it's not a problem they spent too much money but like the situation like the economic policies were still smart It was good that they did all the stuff that they did. They should have done more. But that doesn't mean that people, like, should be happy about how their lives have gone. It's been a bad situation. It's been a tough, like, year for anybody to govern. Like, you can't, like, just cry about how unfair that is. You have to deal with it. And, like, there's an inability to kind of reckon with that kind of, uh, that set of circumstances that I think is very kind of immature.
0: Thank you so much, Edgar Manson, for coming on the show today.
3: Yeah, no problem.
0: All right. Um, uh, yes, thank you. For and
1: maybe you can see by the show in the future when we get closer to election stuff.
0: Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by Marxist Humanist Initiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.